All right. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. I am excited. I'm excited because we milked our cow for the third day and it went right this time. So it was a blessed morning. I didn't have to take a shower or anything. Some of you know what I'm talking about. They get nervous in the stanchion. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Anyhow, anybody want to buy some milk? Um, this morning, although we're going to spend some time, I don't want you to turn there yet, in Luke chapter 1, I want, to, I want you to turn your Bibles to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, and I want to spend some time there before we get to Luke. Um. Malachi is the second to the last prophet that God sends to the nation of Israel. John the Baptist being the very last prophet. When Malachi is sent, it's during the time of Nehemiah, which is what makes it sort of disappointing to me to read. It's a wonderful book. We don't study it very often. Maybe once every six, seven years we get to the book of Malachi. But it's packed with stuff that I didn't realize how closely ties together with John the Baptist and his birth. And so that's why I wanted to go there this morning before we go to Luke chapter 1. Malachi, written during the time of Nehemiah, Malachi was sent actually to the nation of Israel during the time of Nehemiah, where things were going really well for them. They were under Persian rule. The Persians, all they cared about were their taxes. And as long as you paid their taxes, you could do whatever you wanted to do. It was like they didn't exist. It was nothing like the Babylonians at that time. And so there was a little bit of complacency building up, a lot of complacency. They were very comfortable. Businesses were going well. Finances were good. Taxes are always taxes, you know, but they could overlook that as long as they had the freedom. Temples built, walls are built. They're restored to their land. And everything they had begged God for earlier has happened. And now there's, well, less begging. And I would say even less just plain old praying and thanking him. They'd forgotten him. And so God sends this prophet to them in the middle of their ease, in the middle of their wealth and uh, prosperity. And if you look at it and you understand the Old Testament, Jesus has the bride of Christ, which is the church is the bride of Christ. And the father's bride is Israel. As you go through the Old Testament, you read that. He's my, she's my bride. And so Malachi is an interesting way of God-like exposing an argument, a marital argument between the father, uh, our father, and the bride of Israel. It's kind of (laughs) one-sided. You know, in our day and age, we like to say everything's 50-50. It's 50-50. You know, it takes two to tango, you know, and and, uh, well, when it comes to God and and a marriage, there's really only one person at fault, always. It's never 50-50 with him. Because he always does what he's supposed to do. He always fulfills his role. Not only in duty and in frequency and, and in, you could, in faithfulness, but in heart. I mean, he really loves his people, regardless of how they treat him. Um, and it's quite a testimony to see that. What a great example he is for us, especially as men, how we are to be towards our wives. So this Malachi is written also then 400 years before Matthew, or before Matthew, before the advent of Jesus Christ, before Christmas, before the birth, 
So we've got 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and the four Gospels. We have 400 years of silence before the advent of Jesus Christ, before the birth. And very much like a marital argument, there is that calm before the storm. It's a a silence in the house that's very unnerving. You're on eggshells. It's pins and needles. It's very uncomfortable. A lot of thoughts. And as God sends this Malachi to be his mouthpiece, his voice, his, to exclaim to his bride how he feels and what his problem is with her, she doesn't really respond. All he can say is, this is what you've said about me, and here's what I've done, and I, do not, I see the disconnect. I don't see where your evaluation of me is right. And although the argument rages, and he, after Malachi, leaves... For 400 years, he's silent. It's as if Israel really doesn't notice all that much or care. Because they continue on in that place of ease and, and, and blessing and everything. Because God still fulfills his role as the provider and the protector of Israel. But slowly but surely, they're drifting away. And for 400 years, they're silent. But they're all going through the motions of this marriage. They're going through the motions of the sacrifices. They're going through the motions of um, the prayers until a man named Zacharias. And this is where God broke me. There's just this beautiful reconnection that Zacharias makes with the father in the temple and begins to offer up true prayers, begins to offer up a true heart for the people. He's a priest that really takes his role and his responsibilities to heart, and he begins to fulfill those responsibilities and God speaks again. So let me go through some of the arguments that happen here in Malachi before we go there. The first thing is actually verses 1 and 2. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. God says to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you have set, you say, in what way have you loved us? That's the argument. Can you imagine? To be so blinded to how beautiful your husband is that you look at him and say, I don't see it. When all God's done and all we've read from Genesis to Malachi is how God protects and pours out and just takes the beating from Israel, the lack of love, the lack of uh, faithfulness, lack of trust, and yet still continues to pour out on them, still continues to call them his people, never divorces her, never walks away from her. And yet at the very end, they're saying, in what way have you loved us? Later on in that same chapter 1, another thing that God notices is that there's a pollution of the offerings that's taking place. The, The priests are beginning to offer up not the best, but they're giving God the leftovers, the things that won't sell at the market, the things that Persia won't even take as taxes. And so God says in verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then, if then I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name. You don't care. Later on in verse 8, he says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. 
Try giving that to Persians, see what they say when you offer them a blind lamb or some kind of lame thing. They know. Even man knows when you're giving them a half-hearted attempt at a relationship. And God's noticed this for a while. After he releases them from Babylon into Persia, after he releases them from Persia into the promised land, after he protects them all the way around and allows them to build their temple again to worship him in the walls, this is the result of that, just this what have you done for me lately attitude from Israel. Later on in chapter 2, verse 7, what bothers him about the priests as well as offering up lame, blind, and second place sacrifices to him. For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge. The people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And he begins to describe that beautiful covenant he had with Levi. I picked Levi, one of the tribes, and I said, I'm, you're going to be my guys. You're not going to do anything, but you're going to intercede on behalf of the people towards me. You're going to pray for them. And I'm going to speak to you in those moments, and you're going to speak to them what I say. And there's just going to be this beautiful connection through you, through a, a mediator, through a priest. Of course, foreshadowing what Christ will do. But they haven't done that for a long time. They've stopped doing what they're supposed to do. They're still wearing the garb. They're still probably taking the benefits of being a priest. You know, all the, all the money and the extra sacrifices and the meat and everything that gets offered to them. But they're not doing what they were called to do. He even says this in verse 17 of that same chapter. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? He says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? This is what you're telling the people, and I hear you. You're telling the people that are coming with sacrifices for their sins, or they're coming with conviction that comes from me, and your response to them is, you're all right. You're okay with God, but that conviction isn't from me. That, that conviction doesn't need to be acted upon, that there isn't any necessary need for repentance. And that's what you're telling people. Later on in chapter 3, he describes how they're robbing him. And they say, in what way have we robbed you? And he says, bring in all the tithes to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. They'd stop tithing, giving offerings. It was more important for them to pay Persia than it was for them to honor God. In verse 14 of that same chapter, you've said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it? that we have kept his ordinances and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts and begin to complain about how this worship isn't getting them anything from him. There's nothing to be gained from this. We see the proud, they're blessed. We see the wicked, they're raised up, he says. Now that's it. As far as the argument goes, it's a one-sided argument. He asks the question and answers it at the same time, which only he can do because they're really not hearing And they don't hear him for 400 years. He just keeps quiet. But before he shuts down, before he waits for the time to come, for his savior to come, for his son to be sent, 
In verse 16, he reminds them of something about those that are a remnant at the time, because there's always a remnant. It isn't the whole nation in total. There's always a group of people that really want to seek him, that really want to honor him. And despite whatever obstacles they come into, you know, you've seen throughout history of Israel running into crazy priests where they had to kind of juke the priest to get the, <laughs> the, the sacrifice to God. I think uh, the sons... Um, that were not very good priests. They'd stick their meat fork into the stuff and take the food out. They said, you're supposed to wait till after we offer this to God. They said, yeah, we're going to take it now. They're just corrupt priests. Or when she comes and prays for a baby at that same time period, and Eli sees her, he's the priest at the time, and he sees Hannah, they're praying and pouring her heart out, and he, he just assumed she was drunk. Just put away your wine, woman. I'm not drunk. I'm just praying for a baby. Oh, sorry. But there's always a group of people that are constantly trying to get closer and closer to God, despite all the obstacles that come in their way. And so he says this about them. There's a book of remembrance, he says in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. I don't know if you knew that or not, but every time you meet, here, there, or anywhere, and you lift up the name of Jesus, or you're talking about him, or you're by yourself and just contemplating God's word. He makes note of that and writes that down. It's pleasing to him. It doesn't go unnoticed. And so there's a book of remembrance. In chapter 4, he begins to tell them about a time when he's coming to judge the world. There is going to be coming a time. And chapter 4 covers both comings, both first and second appearing of Jesus. And this is one of those passages where they had a difficult time understanding. How do they both work? How can there be someone that can be so compassionate, loving, and gracious at the same time, light everything on fire and burn everything that's stubble? And so he blends this for Malachi. And Malachi, all he can do is say what he hears. But if you read carefully, because we have the New Testament, we have the benefit of that, we can see how he's speaking of the things we're studying in Revelation on Thursday nights. But you can also see the birth of Christ, the birth of John the Baptist, and how Elijah's coming twice. Once in the Spirit by John the Baptist to herald the coming, the advent of Jesus the first time, but also coming the second time as one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. Both times, Elijah comes. And so he says in verse 4, Remember in the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. True. And then he blends it with the first coming. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike a curse or strike the earth with a curse. And then he's quiet. I'm going to send Elijah before I come, that great and dreadful day. And then he combines it with that first coming and says, but he's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And that's what happens. So if you turn to Luke with me, because on uh, this Friday night, when we have our candlelight service, we'll be reading most of the story. Um, I want to hit the parts that we're not going to read. And that's the first 25 verses of Luke chapter 1. 
So for 400 years, God has been silent. For 400 years, they have gone into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, like they're supposed to do every time. Offer up the sacrifices. Here comes the incense. And there's been no response from God. And so they come out and just say, I mean, they didn't probably do this, but this is about what it was like. I hope it worked. I hope it worked. When normally they would come out and say, forgiven, the nation's forgiven. But for 400 years, they haven't heard from God. And so it's more like, you know, we did it. I don't know. I think it worked. They had no assurance until this day. So Dr. Luke writes this to Theophilus, a friend of his, to make sure he understands everything that has to do with Jesus Christ, because you've heard bits and pieces of the story. So Luke says, I really want you to know how it all went down. And so he writes the, the book for this Theophilus, his friend. And that's why he writes the book of Acts also. That's like Luke 2 to describe this is the birth of Christ and what happened at the crucifixion. And here's the birth of the church and what's been happening with the church ever since. I laid it all out for you so you can read it from beginning to where we are today. And so he says, inasmuch as we have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." Now, at various times in various places, it says in Hebrews 1, God has spoken to us in times past uh, to the fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has uh, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All of the prophets were sent by God until Jesus, who is the final one to speak to mankind, and the last time. Everything that that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus. And Jesus tried to share that with these guys, tried to help them understand what's happening here. I don't think people fully get the silence of 400 years. We've been trying to talk to you, trying to bring you to repentance, until finally says, I'm just going to stop. Because every time I send one of my servants to you, you kill him. Jesus told that story in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 39. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into the far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. These would be the prophets that God has sent repeatedly. Then last of all, he sent his son, to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is that moment that we're reading about. This is the advent. This is the coming of the son. I don't know who else to send. I don't know how many different ways I can say it to you. But I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good God. 
I've done nothing but bless you. I've done nothing but take care of you. I want you to come back. I want you to come back. I want you to come back. And when we wouldn't, and when they wouldn't, he finally sends his son on the final mission to not only speak and to try to get the attention of Israel, but when they spot him, they know who he is, they understand who he is, and they said, let his blood be upon our hands and upon our children's heads. And they're willing to kill him for it. But that's part of the plan. In an argument that took place 400 years ago in Malachi, and although the bride is the one who's wrong and needs to ask for forgiveness, the husband comes up to the bride and says, let me do it. Touches her, comes close to her, takes her sin upon himself and dies for her. What an example. In verse 5 of chapter 1, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God. This is the priest he's been waiting for. A beautiful couple that just loves the Lord. Walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and were both well advanced in years. So they'd given up. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Those would be the incense. Those would be the faithful ones. Those would be the remnant. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And after 400 years, I might add, went into Zacharias, he saw him and he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayers heard. I appreciate the faithful. I appreciate Zacharias. I appreciate his wife. I appreciate the remnant. I want to be them. I don't want to ever be in that place where you look at God and say, what have you done for me lately? You know, what a beautiful moment. Had no expectations, probably assumed he wasn't going to see anybody that day. Probably would have preferred not to see anybody that day because when an angel shows up, you never know, you know. And that's where the terror comes from. That's where the fear comes from. It's been quiet for 400 years and now you're talking. What do you have to say? He says, I don't want you to be afraid. This is a good thing. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Fulfilling the last verse of Malachi. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. In other words, this is not the prayer he prayed today. This is the prayer he prayed 20 years ago. Oh Lord, bring us a baby, a boy. That'd be great. 
They stopped praying that prayer a long time ago. 20 years, 30 years, I don't know how old he is, comes in and the angel says, hey, your prayer's answered. You're going to have a baby boy. Huh? (laughs) You know? Oh, my. And so he doubts. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you'll be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Hmm. Mute, unable to talk because you didn't believe God. I don't mean to pause for dramatic effect. I just try to put these things together in my head. 400 years of silence. John's dad is now quiet and can't speak until the things are fulfilled. There is no relationship. You're just going to have to see it happen, I guess. You know, I've tried to tell you over and over again how I'm with you, how I'm for you, how my thoughts towards you are as the sands of the sea, and they're precious. I know the hairs and the, I don't know how many hairs you have on your head, you know? But I guess I just have to show you. And so, Zacharias, you're going to have to be quiet now. You're going to have to be a sign in and of yourself, a wonder. People are going to look at you and say, Zacharias can't talk. They're going to say, why can't he talk? Well, it's because, so the witness will go out regardless of whether he can open his mouth or not. He's mute because he didn't believe God was going to give him a baby. And look, his wife's showing, you know, she's got a baby bump. How amazing is that? And the people waited for Zacharias, so he's inside and he's mute, and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. She hid herself for five months, saying, Thus, says, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Which is a sad verse in and of itself. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but she'd been reproached her whole life because she wasn't able to have kids, which goes very much along with what we've been discussing in Job. There was an assumption made about Elizabeth and Zacharias. There was an assumption that they weren't doing what God wanted them to do, that they weren't righteous before the Lord, that there was something wrong with them in their walk. And what a sad thing that is when people misunderstand and prejudge. But there she is having her baby now. And boy, is she proud. I bet she wore the tightest ephod she could. I don't know what they wore back then, but I bet she was just like, I bet she was. Now this Friday, if you're able to make it, I hope you are. We're going to read through the rest of this chapter and talk about the annunciation that's going to be given to Mary here and how she visits Elizabeth and both baby bumps meet and they both rejoice together. And um, just the beauty of the whole thing, these, these two unlikely women, the oldest and the youngest, and God's using both. What a beautiful testimony that is to all of us. That God can use us in our later years or he can use us right now in your younger years. It makes no difference or anywhere in between. That God wants to use us, and what He's looking for is Zacharias's and Elizabeth's. What He's looking for are Mary's and Joseph's. He's looking for these people that are the remnant, who may be misunderstood, but they don't care. They still want to serve God, and in their hearts, they won't deny Him. They don't ask those questions in Malachi. 
What have you done for me lately? They don't deny him honor. They speak the truth. They speak the truth in love. These are things we can do. These are things that we can aspire to and not become like the rest of the world. That first question is what gets me the most in Malachi. And he answers it with John 3.16. When they asked him, in what way have you loved us? You're just going to have to see. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what a beautiful moment and a deeper understanding for me this year that talk about being the bigger man, you know, and stepping in when it wasn't your responsibility to step in, when it wasn't your fault and to see that, to see God step in, knowing that he had done nothing wrong and yet so loved the world that he sends his son and imputes all of their unrighteousness onto him. He takes all of their wrongs, all their arguments against him, all of the things they sinned against him and were unfaithful and placed it upon himself and he made it right with them so that he could have a relationship with them forever. It's beautiful. Um, and that's where we close. It's kind of a short teaching, I'm sorry. But... It was very powerful, and when you pull those two things together, Malachi and Luke, or Malachi and Matthew, or any of them, you see a a much greater picture and a much better, I think, relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It isn't so different. It isn't so night and day. A lot of people see it that way. That's the Old Testament. Yeah. It's just a perfect ending to the Old Testament, you know? It is an old covenant. It it was an old covenant. Marriage. It was something that wasn't working. That although one side was keeping all the promises and vows set at the altar, the other side wasn't. And so there had to be a new covenant made, a new promise, a new vow, where the husband was going to keep both sides of it regardless and make a way for his bride to be with him forever. And what a beautiful time to celebrate the birth of that way the way that was made for us to come close to God forever and to spend forever with him in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time of year where we get to spend time celebrating, um, feeling the closeness that only this time of year brings. It's, it's rare. There's something about it. Everybody looks forward to it for the most part. Everybody enjoys the buildup and the lead and then the night and the day of it. There's a lot of work sometimes. There's a lot of heart and effort poured into whatever celebrations and however, whatever form they may take, God, but it's so worth it. It's such a labor of love to put up lights or to do a tree or to set some decorations around the house or prepare a meal for a family. It's so important, Lord. It's so worth it. You, you're invited and We want you to come into every aspect of this Christmas of our lives. We want you to be a part of every area of it, every meal, every worship service, every song that's sung, God. We sing it to you in thanksgiving. We eat unto you in thanksgiving. And we praise you for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ, how you sent him. 
Thank you for sending him first and not just the second time. So thankful you came to make it right so that we could spend forever, so there could be forgiveness of sins. That you sent John to prepare the way, getting people's hearts to repent and be prepared to receive that forgiveness that you offer them. And we want to share that beautiful joy with those around us this year. I pray your words would just flow off of our lips, that the name of Jesus would be so beautiful to our ears and to those around us that you are truly exalted during this time, truly lifted up for who you are and what you've done. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good Christmas. And if you need any prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. If you want to stick around, second service is when the kids come up and sing and everything, and thus the shorter service, the shorter sermon.